Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must a kiss is just a kiss. A Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. A few weeks back, we brought you the first part of a story about the period, starting around the mid-1980s, in which Madonna was both the biggest female pop star in the world and also maybe the universe's highest-profile, serious cinephile. That episode began with the story of how Madonna got her first film role in Desperately Seeking Susan and continued as she paid tribute to Marilyn Monroe, Marlena Dietrich, Orson Welles, and countless other Hollywood luminaries through her music videos. It included her tumultuous marriage to Sean Penn, during which Madonna starred in two disastrous films, Shanghai Surprise and Who's That Girl? We talked about that time when Sean Penn allegedly broke into his estranged wife's house, tied Madonna to a chair, and held her hostage for hours. We talked about the breakup record Madonna released a few months after that incident, Like a Prayer, and the David Fincher-directed music video for Vogue. In short, we talked about a lot, so if you haven't yet, you may want to go back and listen to that episode before you continue with this one. Part one of this story ended in roughly spring 1990. For part two, we're going to have to backtrack a bit, first to January 1989, when the newly single Madonna began a personal and professional relationship with Warren Beatty. In January 1989, Warren Beatty was about to turn 52 years old. 
Madonna had been a toddler in the early 1960s when Beatty had become a star, but as a student of both film history and the structures and mechanics of celebrity power, Madonna found Beatty fascinating, and not just as a man, but as a kind of mentor. He was, after all, one of the only stars to bridge the gap between the old Hollywood studio era and the new Hollywood wave of movies like The Graduate, The Godfather, and Beatty's own babies, Shampoo and Bonnie and Clyde. He had all the glamour that Madonna fetishized, but he had also become a mogul essentially by rebelling against the establishment, which was pretty much Madonna's own game plan. During their relationship, Warren Beatty would admit to Madonna that at one point, he'd wanted to be president of the United States. But then, he realized that Hollywood was better than Washington. He had more power in Hollywood, and he could exercise it without facing the roadblocks of Washington bureaucracy. He was, he said, the president of Hollywood. This is the story of what happened when the president of Hollywood and the queen of MTV teamed up for mutually beneficial purposes, in the shadow of her traumatic split from Sean Penn, and in advance of his decision to finally hang up his bachelor shoes for good. This is the second and final installment of Madonna from Sean to Warren. Warren Beatty's 1980s began with Reds, a difficult-to-birth baby that cemented Beatty's status as the only man in Hollywood, or maybe the world, who could do exactly what he could do. Starring himself and his sometime girlfriend, Diane Keaton, Reds was a sweeping, big-budget historical romance in something like the old Hollywood tradition, except it was in celebration of communists, and it was done at the dawning of the Reagan era. It was nominated for all the Oscars, and won three, including a directing trophy for Beatty. But even Reds couldn't erase Beatty's reputation, a rep that had been attached to him since his very first days in Hollywood, as not just a womanizer, but a man who managed to sleep with everyone he wanted to sleep with, and without ever having to, as they say, buy the cow. He managed to long-con romance Oscar-winning beauties like Diane Keaton and Julie Christie, and also have one-night stands with people like 16-year-old Cher. When he started becoming a star in the early 1960s, during what he called the high tide of American colonial power, Beatty thought of himself as a sexual conqueror. He positioned his refusal to marry as a political action, a strike against conservative middle American family values. And for decades, he embodied all that the sexual revolution had promised. In fact, he embodied it until long past the point when that ideal of masculinity had become passé. By the mid-1980s, his chronic inability to pick one woman and build a life with her was starting to seem a little desperate. Around the time of Ishtar, he and girlfriend Isabella Johnny propositioned a not-yet-famous Fran Drescher, who declined. When disgraced producer Julia Phillips was initially unreceptive to his advances, Beatty sweetened the deal by suggesting she bring along her 14-year-old daughter. Phillips, who was not known for drawing lines in the sand when it came to libertinism of any kind, also declined. 
Beatty's inability to give up the option of having multiple women was paralleled by his inability to make decisions in his work. He was a perfectionist who once said, a movie is never really done, and he was always easily distracted. Dustin Hoffman recalled a day on the Ishtar set in which Beatty, in producer mode, began confiding in the other actor about how he knew he probably should fire director Elaine May, who had lost control of the production, but he couldn't do it. And then Beatty, mid-sentence, stopped talking, and Hoffman followed his gaze and realized that Beatty had become completely transfixed by a woman, an extra in full traditional Muslim garb. Eventually, Beatty snapped to attention and said, Where was I? And Hoffman asked him, what was that about? How could he be so easily distracted away from his apparently passionate focus on his problems as a producer by a woman whose face he couldn't even see? And Beatty said, I don't know. Theoretically, said Dustin Hoffman, if, given the chance, is there any woman on the planet who you would not fuck? Beatty thought about it, seriously, for a while. And he decided that the answer was no. No, there isn't any woman that he would not fuck. You're serious, asked Hoffman. Yes, he was serious. So Hoffman asked, why? And Beatty said, because you never know. Prior to Ishtar, every film Warren Beatty had ever produced had turned out somewhere between pretty good and legendary. It hadn't come easy. He was known for doing so many takes for seemingly no reason that crew members would call him Master Beatty. But he got results. And then Ishtar missed its first release date. This was a red flag to the media. May, Hoffman, and Beatty each had contractual right to final cut and each employed a separate editing staff to produce a cut at enormous expense. But in the media, most of the blame went to Beatty, whose perfectionistic indecision was branded as something like a disease. And Beatty already hated the media. He was a notorious closed book. Even some of those closest to him insisted they didn't really know him. Robert Evans said Beatty never answers questions. He only asks them. According to his sister, Shirley MacLaine, even as a kid, Warren had a private life no one could penetrate. Beatty himself once said, if you have something to hide, then hide it. To this end, he hated doing interviews to promote his films, insisting that the work should speak for itself. Ishtar opened at number one at the box office, making $4.3 million in its first weekend, and then dropping into an abyss after that, grossing only $12.7 million. It had cost at least $50 million to make. Beatty would blame the media for Ishtar's failure. And he was right that the advanced buzz on the troubled production probably overshadowed the film's mixed-to-positive reviews. But it's also pretty clear that Warren Beatty, superstar of the 60s and 70s, was having trouble adjusting to mid-to-late 80s corporate media-driven America. Box office numbers used to be the province of the trade magazines. Now, they were reported on, on the nightly news. And the question of whether or not a film had turned a profit for the conglomerate parent of its studio 
was the public's most prevalent measure of said film's value. Beatty had had a couple of rough years. There was Ishtar, there was the death of his father, there was the sex scandal that wrecked the presidential hopes of Beatty's friend, Gary Hart. He was depressed. He felt irrelevant. He'd sit in his Mulholland Drive mansion for days on end, watching sports on TV. He and the men of his generation had gone from setting the agenda of the culture to being has-beens, obscure old men. And it had happened so quickly, in the blink of an eye. Or at least, that's what it seemed like to him. He felt like what he needed was a hit. A hit that would show the studios that he still had it, and would show the public that he still had his finger on the pulse of the culture. And that is where Madonna came in. Way back in 1985, Martin Scorsese had been signed to direct Dick Tracy, with Beatty just producing. But Beatty wouldn't give Scorsese final cut, and so in the aftermath of Ishtar, Beatty decided to direct Dick Tracy himself and make it the mainstream hit he thought he needed. Beatty would play the titular detective. Sean Young was cast as Beatty's long-suffering girlfriend, and then fired and replaced by Glenn Headley. And then there was the other female lead. Breathless Mahoney, the cabaret singer with a barely-veiled lust for power and not-at-all-veiled lust for Dick Tracy. Sean Penn had introduced Warren Beatty to Madonna. He had actually brought her to Beatty's house on their first date, and Madonna had called Beatty while she was still married to Penn to beg for the role of Breathless. At the time, Madonna was frustrated by her movie career, which was totally stalled after back-to-back flops in Shanghai Surprise and Who's That Girl? She felt like she was on the Z-list, looking up at the A-list. Beatty gave her a verbal spanking, castigating her for her stupid choices. Madonna accepted this. She even agreed. It took Beatty a year to decide on who to cast. He considered Michelle Pfeiffer, Brooke Shields, Sharon Stone, and then gave the part to Madonna. During that year, Madonna and Sean's marriage fatally fell apart. In January 1989, the ink was still wet on the Madonna-Sean Penn divorce papers, and Madonna was still recovering psychologically from the breakup and the violence that had preceded it. She was having nightmares. She felt guilty for what she felt was her role in the failure of the marriage. She had teased him with Sandra Bernhardt, and maybe she hadn't done enough to encourage him to quit drinking. Self-esteem-wise, she was at an all-time low. But the role in Dick Tracy was hers, and she and her new co-star and director had started being spotted together around town. At their first dinner together, Madonna said, I know you've heard a lot of terrible things about me, and I'm here to tell you, they're all true. How about you? I've heard a lot about you. The public nature of Madonna's choice of a rebound was almost surely intentional, and Penn found out about it immediately. He'd track Madonna when she went out at night, following her to Warren's house, waiting outside all night just to confirm she didn't leave until the morning. But this new relationship seemed calculated in other ways, too. Ways which had nothing to do with Madonna getting revenge on her piece-of-shit ex-husband. The Beatty-Madonna alliance was described by some including Madonna's then-close friend, Sandra Bernhard, as a mutually beneficial, demographic-expanding romance. 
through which Madonna could make Warren Beatty seem hip, and Warren Beatty could give Madonna legit Hollywood credibility. These are Madonna's first words in Dick Tracy, written by Stephen Sondheim. The subtext of Dick Tracy is an aging man's vacillation between domesticity, represented by the sweet, motherly Glenn Headley and a cushy desk job, and a life of sexual and professional risk, represented by Madonna's nightclub singer and Tracy's pursuit of the ring of gangsters with which she's involved. Beatty would later say that the movie was really about him finding his way to married life. But while making the thing, he and Madonna... We're living out a typically baby, typically neither here nor there dynamic. Bernhard would characterize the baby Madonna romance as very odd, noting that her friend generally preferred the company of young himbos because, quote, one on one, Madonna is not the kind of person who goes super deep or really opens up. Bernhard was maybe unaware that she was citing something Warren and Madonna had in common. Maybe Madonna was just playing her part in this charade when she talked up Beatty's sexual proclivities and penis size to any and every journalist who would listen. He knows a woman's body better than most women, she said. She bragged about how he loved spanking her. And she even wrote a song, Hanky Panky, for her Dick Tracy companion album devoted to, quote-unquote, Warren's favorite sport. At first, at least, Warren seemed to get a kick out of being Mr. Madonna. Whether it was accurate or not, he seemed to like people thinking that he was kinking it up with a much younger sex goddess. They played out weird power games in public, often at restaurants where they had to have known they were being watched. One night in the middle of an argument at dinner, things got so weird that hockey player Wayne Gretzky, who was sitting at the next table, turned around and said, Knock it off, you two. Within minutes, Warren was cutting Madonna's fish into small pieces and feeding them to her like a child. Madonna and Sean had had two opposite approaches to being famous, and Madonna and Warren, too, were two different types of famous people. But Madonna genuinely admired Warren's approach to being a star. He'd walk into a room, and people were excited to have him there. He could charm anybody. There were stories of him going into the Disney offices to ask for more money, and within minutes having straight-laced, bean-counting female executives sitting on his lap. He was the pro, the great seducer, the president of Hollywood. She was an intimidating, new-generation diva who was expected to stomp into a room in sunglasses and black leather and say outrageous things and make demands. But she knew she had a lot to learn from Warren. He threw a Dick Tracy rap party at his house, and Madonna co-hosted. She was on her best behavior. At one point in the night, Warren asked his guests to be quiet while he played a song from the Dick Tracy soundtrack, something to remember 
sung by Madonna. When it was over, led by Warren, the entire party burst into applause for Madonna. Jack Nicholson was there, marveling at what he described as this beautiful, unpredictable, amazing young woman with tears in her eyes. He thought, Jesus, what a star. This may have been the high point of Madonna and Warren Beatty as a Hollywood power couple. In May 1989, after they'd been dating five months, Warren had given Madonna a ring. She thought it was an engagement ring. He would later call it a friendship ring. Soon, he reignited a dormant affair. Betty had met Delaunay Michelle in 1985 when she was an 18-year-old coat check girl at the Four Seasons. By the time Beatty was shooting Dick Tracy, Delaunay Michelle was in her early 20s and had moved to Los Angeles. Beatty would see Madonna in the early part of the evening. The two would be photographed or observed at one L.A. restaurant or another. And then they'd go home separately. And Beatty would spend the night with his even younger dish on the side. One night, while being trailed for a magazine profile, Madonna forced Warren to join her and Sandra Bernhardt at Catch One, a gay disco in South L.A. Warren sulked in a booth while Madonna and Sandra danced it up. When Warren wouldn't join them, Madonna loudly called him Pussy Man. He responded by snorting allergy spray. The story of this night was swiftly disseminated, and she came out of it better than him. She was the one who had the power to drag a Hollywood icon into the underground. He was the old man on the sidelines. Warren started telling his friends that he was exhausted. She's a nice girl, but you can't take her out, he said. I'm too old for this. A little while later, Beatty told Mike Nichols that he had had a suspicion that women who went by just a first name are all pretty much alike. Mike Nichols was like, what? What are you talking about? And Beatty responded, well, think about it. It's the ultimate patricide. Patricide must have been extra frightening to Beatty, because recently, he had started to feel like being a patriarch might not be that bad. Beatty used to admiringly talk about how Howard Hughes would only ever ejaculate into a woman's mouth because he was so terrified of insemination. But Beatty had had some kind of attack of awareness. He wasn't getting any younger. And maybe marriage and children weren't the death sentence to virility he had previously feared they might be. Much later, Beatty would say that Dick Tracy was all about the fatigue he had felt with bachelorhood. It was, he said, all about wanting to have a family. Madonna may have been Beatty's last fling, but that doesn't excuse the chauvinism she was subjected to. Breathless is treated like a slave by her mob boss, Al Pacino's big boy, and compared to Dick Tracy's maternal good girl girlfriend Tess, Madonna's character was, as she put it, a cheap floozy. Based on accounts of the Dick Tracy set, Beatty and his crew conflated the millionaire business empress pop star with her character. The press coverage of the Dick Tracy shoot reads today as very creepy, leering and condescending to Madonna, 
like she was a space alien from the planet of sex, drugs, and rock and roll who crash-landed into a little Puritan village where they happened to be shooting a movie. Even Ladies Home Journal reported that every time she put her arms up in the air at the end of a dance number, her breasts popped out, and that the costume crew were afraid to ask the actress if they could glue her into the garment in order to solve the problem. The trades were quick to point out that the primary reason why Beatty had given in to Madonna's demands for the role was that she was willing to work for scale, making her not just the kind of working girl who asks for it, but also one who would do it for cheap. Madonna would later say that the primary thing Beatty seemed to care about as her director was her body. He made her gain weight a full 10 pounds, which was a lot on a girl barely over five feet tall, in order to make sure she really filled out her dresses. Then at the costume shop, he'd bark fitting orders, tighter, tighter, cut it down lower. He'd circle her like a vulture, scrutinizing her. She said she felt both like a slab of beef and like the ugliest thing in the world. She had always exploited her own body, used her sexuality as a means of provocation, but it was different to have Warren Beatty do it. In the June 1990 issue of Premier magazine, Beatty's future biographer Peter Biskin declared, Dick Tracy will make Madonna a movie star. He compared her relationship to Beatty's camera to Marlena Dietrich's relationship to Josef von Sternberg's camera. She's treated, Biskin wrote, not like an actress, but an icon. It was a sentiment that would be echoed in many reviews. But what these guys didn't seem to understand in the moment was that by this point, Madonna had already presented herself as a Dietrich or a Hayworth in music videos, photo shoots, and album covers. In a video like Vogue or on the concert stage or on the cover of a magazine promoting a record, Madonna seemed to be animating those old Hollywood ideals, but as herself. To ask her to do the same thing within the frame that Beatty created, hiding behind a comic book character, produced an effect that was a little different. Especially since the movie, after willingly bending to accommodate the camp charge Madonna brings to it, ultimately turns away from her. It ultimately says that the good girl is the right girl, and the bad girl is bad for you, and that if you're lucky, she'll just do the right thing and die. It was the epitome of the binary squareness that Madonna was so good at subverting and transcending. The following April, Madonna left Beatty in L.A. while she embarked on her next project, the Blonde Ambition World Tour. The concert was synergistic to Dick Tracy in that it included songs from the film and even a set piece in which Madonna strutted with male dancers in yellow trench coats. But it was also kind of an insurance policy in case Dick Tracy didn't give Madonna the vault off of the Z-list that she felt she so desperately needed. A stunning spectacle devoted to visualizing the themes of sex, death, and religion woven throughout the Like a Prayer album, the Blonde Ambition Tour reminded the world that Madonna was essentially a performance artist who combined elements of music, dance, theater, and visual art, and so that no one would miss its majesty, Madonna hired a young, hip filmmaker named Alakas Shishian to document the tour. And ostensibly, Madonna's life behind the scenes whilst leading a circus of young backup singers and dancers around the world. Warren thought this was a terrible idea. May St. Jude, the saint of lost causes, 
Find a way to bring that girl to her senses, he said. Maybe it wasn't a lost cause, though. Maybe Madonna was just not willing to put all of her movie stardom eggs in Warren Beatty's basket. Maybe she had reached the point where conventional movie stardom wasn't going to work for her unless it was on her own terms. Batman had been a game-changing hit the summer of 1989, and so Dick Tracy, the comic book movie released the very next summer, was always going to be measured against Tim Burton's movie. In its way, Dick Tracy is an even more sophisticatedly designed movie than Batman, and even more surface-oriented. Dick Tracy's primary color palette was meant to evoke a naive world, a child's world, a world in which good was good and bad was bad, and there were literally no shades of gray. The dialogue was modeled after the movies of the production code era, with the sexually charged back and forth between Tracy and Breathless self-consciously styled after Bogart and McCall's banter in movies like To Have and Have Not. But there was also a hollowness to it. When you watch the movie, you don't care about Dick Tracy's continuing adventures. You don't really care about which woman he chooses, because Glenn Headley's test barely makes an impression at all, and Madonna's Breathless is given the expected end for a woman who likes sex in a film which apparently existed to assert pre-lapsarian family values. The problem, more than the actresses and their characters, is that Beatty is never convincingly torn between the two women. He never looks much like he wants to be with either of them. Disney scheduled Dick Tracy to open on June 15th, giving it a two-weekend head start over what was perceived as its biggest competition, Days of Thunder. Thunder producer Don Simpson sent Disney's Jeffrey Katzenberg a fax that read, You can't escape the thunder. Katzenberg's return fax to Simpson read, You won't believe how big my dick is. As it turned out, his dick was moderately big, big enough to come in at number one at the box office in its first weekend, beating out Gremlins 2, Back to the Future 2, and another 48 hours. And engrossing $50 million by the end of its second weekend, it was the fastest earning film in Disney history to that point. But it came nowhere near to doing Batman business at the box office or in terms of merchandising, and no one was talking sequel. And that despite generally positive reviews, made it perceived as a failure. At the end of the year, Katzenberg trashed Dick Tracy in what would become an infamous 11,000-word memo. Declaring that Dick Tracy wasn't worth the time and money Disney had put into it, Katzenberg wrote that it would be his policy going forward to, quote, avoid filmmakers like Warren Beatty, talented as they may be, because their movies spin out of control. Madonna and Warren had stretched their relationship through the movie's opening, even though Madonna was unhappy with the way he had edited her musical numbers, slicing and dicing them to play out as the backdrop to the film's cops and robbers action. In August, she screened a rough cut of her tour documentary called Truth or Dare for Warren and a few other friends. He didn't like it. Specifically, he didn't like that she had included footage of them talking on the phone, claiming he didn't know she was being filmed while they were speaking. The next day, his lawyer sent her a letter threatening a lawsuit unless certain scenes were deleted. The scenes were deleted, but Warren wasn't exactly appeased. He started freezing her out. On her 32nd birthday, 
he sent her a brooch. Madonna interpreted this as a final kiss-off gift. Who gives Madonna a brooch? A month later, Madonna had a new boyfriend, 26-year-old backup dancer Tony Ward. Warren Beatty took Annette Benning out on a lunch date just before Thanksgiving to see if she would be right for the female lead in his next movie, Bugsy. During that first meeting, Beatty would say later, I began to mourn the passing of a way of life. On their second date, Beatty asked Benning if she wanted to have his children. She said, yes. He said, are you serious? She said, I'm serious if you're serious. Though Madonna and Warren didn't break up until after Truth or Dare finished shooting, his presence is limited to the first half of the film, and the second half heavily implies that he's already out of the picture. If Dick Tracy is the finest example of Madonna doing something like conventional screen acting, Truth or Dare features her most compelling screen performance, in part because it's genuinely unclear to what extent she's in control of that performance. She commissioned the movie, but she claims she gave the filmmakers all access. And there are aspects of the film that are clearly staged, such as a kind of music video set to one of Madonna's most sincerely sad songs, Promise to Try, in which Madonna uses her off time to visit her mother's grave. And that footage is montaged with cost of fame images of her jogging and performing and being made up and facing paparazzi. The film also includes a number of situations in which Madonna is shown not looking her best and not behaving her best. Madonna's manager tried to get her to cut a number of scenes, including the famous one in which Madonna mocks Kevin Costner, and she wouldn't do it. Then there are scenes which are presented as though Madonna thinks they show her in a good light, but which are actually ridiculous. Like when the police in Toronto threaten to arrest her if she simulates masturbation on stage, and then she and her mostly black backup dancers start mockingly singing, We Shall Overcome. She's seen going after Antonio Banderas, who she refers to as the guy from the Pedro Almodovar movies, even though his wife is right there. And then there's the stuff with Warren. Truth or Dare very clearly documents a relationship that's barely hanging on and was maybe never deeply felt to begin with. Remember the famous scene in which Warren critiques Madonna's approach to fame as a lifestyle? This is crazy. Nobody, nobody talks about this on film? Talks about what? The insanity of doing this all on a documentary. It, it, what? A doc- well, this is a serious matter, your throat, yes? Why should I stop here? But does anyone say it? Who's anyone? Well, anyone that comes into this insane atmosphere, you realize they all feel it when they come into this atmosphere. When they come into your dressing room, when they come wherever you are, they feel crazy. Now, do they talk about it? No, they accept it. Well, why don't they talk about it? Because. Well, you want to think about that, don't you? No, I don't. Do you want to talk at all off camera? You have nothing to say. She doesn't want to live off camera. Much less talk. I think that's what it is. <laughs> There's nothing to say off camera. Why would you say something if it's off camera? And tomorrow you're going to be so What point is there? Within the narrative of the film, this commentary makes Warren a buzzkill, an antagonist. But the fact that Madonna allowed the scene to stay in the movie, even making it Warren's last words to her in the film, suggests that this is the fundamental difference between the two of them. 
The old man doesn't understand why she wants to live her life on camera. To the generation that makes up her fan base, which was introduced to the real world the same year that Truth or Dare was released, the why is so evident that it doesn't even have to be stated. Unwittingly, and criticizing his girlfriend, Warren Beatty defined the sensibility of a future generation. And finally, given what we know about Madonna's marriage to Sean Penn, and particularly how it ended, what are we to make of the scene in which Madonna plays truth or dare with some of her dancers, and she chooses truth, and she's asked to name the love of her life so far? My whole life, Sean. Sean. Particularly in its second half, which depicts the tour's European leg and echoes Fellini's La Dolce Vita in the same way the Express Yourself video was indebted to Metropolis, Truth or Dare starts to feel like a tribute to post-war Italian art film, done in Madonna's own distinct fan-fiction style. She's a new divorcee, an artist whose most recent work is a giant leap forward creatively, using religious imagery and language to sort out how she feels about her abusive ex-husband, as well as her own issues, repressed childhood shit that she can't stop from haunting her. She travels the world in search of something elusive. She's at the peak of her career, but privately, she's a mess. She's fallen into a time-killing relationship with a co-worker who's her father's age. And success doesn't erase shitty feelings. It magnifies them. She may be the most famous woman in the world, but she's still grappling to understand how someone she loved so much could have hurt her so badly. Truth or Dare is funny and campy, and sometimes you laugh with Madonna, and sometimes you laugh at her. And I guess you could watch it without thinking about anything at all. But when I watch it, I sort of can't ignore its fundamental sadness. Because what's real in it and what's contrived in it doesn't really ultimately matter. What matters is that it's depicting a real woman who is dancing as fast as she can and clearly isn't happy. Truth or Dare was released in the summer of 1991 a few months after Madonna put the nail in the coffin of the Warren Beatty era by showing up at the Oscars, where she was booked to sing sooner or later the nominated song from Dick Tracy, dressed in full-on Marilyn garb and on the arm of a bewildered-looking Michael Jackson. Truth or Dare would, for a while, stand as the highest-grossing documentary film of all time, and it still stands as basically the last chapter of Madonna's cinephile era even though arguably the peak of her movie career was still to come with Evita, that was a triumph that would draw on what she had already proven she was, a singer and a dancer. Her interest in using movies as a conduit, an inspiration and raw material for work that was more like conceptual art than anything else, that seemed to be over. Maybe the beginning of the end had happened in late 1990, with the controversy surrounding Justify My Love, which just as a single took Madonna's career in a new direction, given that it sampled Public Enemy, and thus was Madonna's first song in direct dialogue with hip-hop. The video, directed by Jean-Baptiste Mondino, and as inspired by European cinema as anything in Truth or Dare, has a real ambient vibe, and enough girl-on-girl kissing that, after promoting it to death, MTV ultimately declared the clip 
religiously and sexually offensive and refused to air it. Whether this was a ginned up controversy or not, Madonna took advantage of it, making the video available for sale as a VHS single. At just under $10 each, she sold nearly half a million copies. ABC's Nightline then ran a news story about the controversy, during which they gave Madonna a platform to defend it, and aired the video in its entirety. Whatever you might think of her next moves, by turning a music video into a pay-per-view commodity and subverting the hegemony of TV networks, controlling which content could be consumed when, Madonna helped to invent the future. It was an incredible end run against the system, and it seemed like after she pulled it off, Madonna was done with worshiping at the altar of Hollywood. She had seen for herself that only old white men get to make the decisions there. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at youmustrememberthispodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at rememberthispod. If you like us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate and review us there. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You abandoned me, love don't